is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. The afternoon of Wednesday, February 20th, 1991, Damian Quigley, a maintenance worker at the Burns Brothers Incorporated truck stop in Troutdale, Oregon, was doing his rounds when he was approached by a man with a whopper of a question for him. Did you hear about this murder last night? This black woman had her hands tied behind her back, nude, raped, and strangled. Quigley said, uh, no, because it would have been impossible for him to know, as it had not yet been reported publicly. The crime was known only to investigating detectives in Portland. The day before, February 19, 1991, Victoria Roan, a former University of Portland student, was found strangled to death inside a truck trailer in a Union Pacific train yard located in North Portland. Robert Carl Bone, originally from Cheyenne, Wyoming, who went by Bobby Dean Allen, was arrested February 21, 1991, in Troutdale, Oregon, at that Burns Brothers truck stop which is now a TA travel center. After the arrest, Allen gave multiple statements to police. In one, he even claimed to have tied up Victoria Roan before she was killed. Allen, 33, had a lengthy record of arrests, the earliest of which I could find was from 1977. In December of that year, he was accused of hitting his 15-month-old daughter one evening, leaving bruises on her face and back. For this crime, he received a three-year suspended sentence and one year of post-release supervision. On April 23, 1979, Bobby Dean Allen was arrested once again, this time being charged with the burglary of his former boss's home. When police took him into custody, he was found to be in possession of items stolen from the home, including rifles, animal pelts, and a stuffed wolverine. Like wolverine from X-Men? No, that's what I thought initially, too. I believe it was just a mean old badger-looking thing, right? Isn't that what wolverine? Like a taxidermied... Yes. Badger. They're, they're actually pretty darn cute, right? No. <laughs> no. They look like nasty little badgers. I think they're cute. Hmm. Weeks later, while awaiting trial for the burglary charge, Allen was arrested and charged with a different home burglary, to which he pleaded no contest and received another suspended three-year sentence and possibly one year in a work release program. It was difficult to tell with the way his sentencing was worded. Allen's defense lawyer, Phil M. Kelly, said since at least 1977, The man had used his persuasive conversational abilities to have himself committed to at least 115 mental institutions. Damn, that's a lot. That's a lot. Bobby Dean Allen, who was houseless and blessed with the gift of gab, excelled at finagling his way through the doors when he was in need of shelter and food. Quote, he tells people what he thinks they want to hear. He will take a kernel of reality and then expand and embellish on it. Portland police detective Joe Goodale, who interviewed Allen after his arrest, said the man knew details of Victoria Roan's murder that only someone present at the time would know. Goodale believed Robert Dean Allen may have actually witnessed the crime or possibly overheard it and viewed the body in the truck trailer after the killer left the scene. Allen was held for nine months while awaiting trial, at which he could possibly face a lethal injection death penalty. His charges were dropped, however, on Thursday, December 5, 1991. A psychologist's evaluation pegged him 
as a compulsive confabulator, someone who routinely tells stories based on little or no truth. Bobby Dean Allen was released for two reasons. One, that detectives realized he was merely a highly talented liar, and two, that another suspect had just been arrested, one who was said to be a truck driver. Linda Ramos Moore was reported missing by a friend on November 5, 1990, the day after she disappeared. The police did not open a case then and would not until six months later when family members reported Linda missing. Linda was last seen leaving a motel around midnight in Seattle on November 4, 1990, just three days before her birthday, wearing a white ski coat and walking to a neighborhood bar to buy cigarettes. But she never returned. Linda also never made it to the bar. Her purse and makeup were left behind in the motel room. The eldest of four siblings, Linda was a divorced mother of two, grappling with an alcohol dependency. Linda moved back to Seattle in the fall of 1990 and was living at the Geisha Inn in North Seattle, just off of Aurora, for a week when she went missing. The motel was knowingly used for sex work. She had even reached out to her sister Shirley that day, calling her at work, but missing her as it was Shirley's day off. Linda's disappearance was linked to the Green River Killer for a time, but a lack of evidence dwindled the connection to a footnote. In an interview, Linda's sister Shirley said, quote, I just want justice for her. No matter what her life was like, she had two beautiful children who never got to know her. And me? I would love her to meet this old bag. I just wish it was different for her. God, I would give anything for her to have some justice. A hunter foraging shed deer antlers in the eastern reach of Snohomish County, north of Seattle, discovered human remains on March 1, 2022. Six months later, Snohomish County Medical Examiner's Office identified via dental record comparison that the body was that of Linda Ramos Moore. After the fortunate yet heartbreaking find, Linda's sister Kathy eulogized her as fearless, brave, and a force of nature. Tia Maria Hicks was reported missing to Seattle police on December 13, 1990. Her father, Leonard, hadn't seen her since November 19th, and he was honest with the officer taking the report, explaining Tia's addiction issues and that she would often fall off his radar and be out of touch for days, sometimes longer. That report was later found to have been filed away as unfounded and was accidentally, or more likely carelessly purged, from state and national databases. Helpful. They gotta make room. Yeah, get rid of that missing persons report. On April 22, 1991, a little over four months after she was first reported missing, Tia Hicks' body was found wrapped in a blue tarp and stuffed into the bilge area of a motorboat stored in a parking lot on 220th Street Southwest, which is either the Silver Dollar Casino in Mount Lake Terrace or the bingo hall across the street. Reports vary. What is the bilge? So it's the bottom of the boat. If you were looking like at the, well, it's the part of the boat that curves up and meets the sides. So oh, it's like the okay. whole bottom area. It's like where, the, where all the water collects. It's, you know, why you need a bilge pump to keep the water out of your boat. Gotcha. So, yeah. So that kind of like angled area. Gotcha. Thank you. And it was in a big boat. I think it was like a 22, well, a fairly big boat, 22 feet or something oh, like okay. that. Yeah. The body was discovered by the boat's owner, who was also the owner of said bingo hall and possibly the casino as well. The identification was confirmed with dental records and fingerprints, though Mountain Lake Terrace Police Sergeant Craig McCall said decomposition was so complete that there was nothing to indicate when or where Tia was killed. Tests on swabs taken from the body provided no useful links to a suspect nor to a cause of death. The medical examiner estimated the corpse had been stashed in the boat 
for three to seven weeks. She'd been dead for months and somewhat recently moved. Tia Hicks was a mother of two and only 20 years old when she was killed. The Washington State Attorney General's Homicide Investigation Tracking System, HITS, comprises investigators and the HITS database, a software application designed to store crime-related information voluntarily contributed by police and sheriff's departments in the Pacific Northwest. The database acts as a central repository for detailed information on violent crimes occurring in Washington and Oregon to collect, analyze, link, and then provide law enforcement with information that will facilitate the resolution of violent crimes and speed the apprehension of violent criminals. The development of HITS began in 1987 in response to the cross-jurisdictional killing frenzies of the many serial murderers of the Pacific Northwest. In Seattle, a bulletin received by HITS in May of 1991, the month after Tia Hicks' body was found, shared enough similarities with the murders in Portland to demand further investigation for possible links between the cases. The investigation into the trucker I mentioned earlier began that August after police in Newburgh, Oregon, where the man had lived since 1989, received information from Seattle Police Detective Dan Fortis of the Special Assault Unit that the man was a suspect in a savage assault and rape committed in Seattle on Thursday, May 30th, 1991. The 23-year-old survivor had been left severely beaten in a parking lot on Fifth Avenue, just a handful of blocks from the Space Needle. The woman attacked was a sex worker, and she'd been left for dead after being raped and choked into a blackout. The suspect, known to the woman as Seth Cutter, was an alias, one of several, used by a man named Scott William Cox, who also used the names Thomas Wood and Thomas Perkins. Charges had not yet been filed in the case because the survivor of the rape could not be located. The HIT system sent a bulletin regarding the attack and the Tia Hicks case to Washington and Oregon police agencies, where Portland detectives found they had two open murder cases with notable similarities to the Seattle crimes. Both women may or may not have been houseless and may or may not have been sex workers. Reports vary. The first was the murder of Victoria Roan, which I detailed earlier. And then, on November 24, 1990, five days after Tia Hicks was last seen, Rena Ann Brunson, of which there is very little known, was found dead in a northeast Portland Safeway parking lot, handcuffed and stabbed once in the heart. Luckily, Scott Cox was easy to track down. He'd been arrested on August 8th of 1991 on a forgery charge and then transferred south to face a charge of gun theft in Medford, in which he was found guilty and sentenced to six months in the Yamhill County Jail. Scott William Cox was born on November 3, 1963, and grew up in Walnut Creek, California, just outside of Oakland, as the youngest of five children, and had lived in the Northwest for a few years. Viewing the composite drawing of the suspect in the Seattle rape, Newburgh police knew Scott Cox was their man. He was a 28-year-old long-haul trucker whose height, build, green eyes, and distinct dark mustache and thick, kind of bushy dark hair all matched the sketch. Newburgh Police Corporal Ken Summers said blood and hair samples were found in several of the trucks Cox drove. Clothing exhibiting blood evidence was also found in Cox's truck at the time of his arrest, as was a, quote, blue police light that plugs into a cigarette lighter. Sick. My worst fear. Mm-hmm. Tests on hair and blood evidence found on the bodies of Rena Brunson and Victoria Roan positively matched Cox, and a former girlfriend reported to police that before his theft conviction in November of 1990, Cox had admitted to her he had killed Brunson. His reasoning for the murder? 
she hadn't followed his orders. Cox's ex-girlfriend also told police Scott usually carried a hunting knife and had a blood-stained sweater among his belongings. Both items were found among his possessions and collected as evidence. Cox was tracked through credit card statements, long-distance phone records, ATM transactions, and trucking company logs going all the way back to 1983. These records showed that from 1989 to 1991, Scott had trucked in and through Washington over 50 times. They also found that work had taken him to more than 3,000 locations. Scott Cox did not own a home or rent an apartment. He lived in a motel when he wasn't out trucking. Cox worked for Schoen Trucking in Newburgh, with the vast range of his routes taking him east to Ohio, south to Mexico, and north to British Columbia. It's a lot of places to leave bodies. Mm -hmm. As word spread about a possible serial killer in custody, law enforcement agencies from Oregon, Washington, California, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois began searching for connections between Scott Cox and at least 20 murders that lay open in their jurisdictions. Over time, they were contacted by at least 30 police agencies. Quote, As each agency shared information about murder cases in its area, it became obvious that many similarities exist in the method and profile of murders. This is just the beginning, said Newburgh Police Chief David Bishop. From jail, Scott Cox claimed to have been told by a Newburgh detective that of the many cases in which he was a suspect, he'd been cleared in at least 18 of them. Newburgh detective Ken Summers called Cox's claim absolutely not true whatsoever, and it looks like we've got another compulsive confabulator on our hands. Quote, Most of the killings involved sex workers who were picked up from streets or at truck stops where they answered calls on citizens' band radios. Oh, we had, a, we had one of those radios in our car for a while. Oh, fun. That's cool. My mom bought a truck and it had one built in. was CB radio. Oh, cool. And then it got stolen. Oh. The bodies were found in a pattern north and south along Interstate 5, where Cox hauled produce, and east and west along Interstate 80. Scott Cox's mother, Helen, was interviewed in the days after Scott's arrest. She said she couldn't help but still love him in the face of the murder charges, but that, quote, I had a problem with Scotty from the start. When he was in trouble, and I have to say he was, it was for stealing. I said, if you don't go by my rules, you can't stay here. He didn't stay around too much. Scott, or Scotty to his mom, began stealing at age 11 and ended up serving nearly three years in youth detention centers as a result. At 21, Cox married his first and only girlfriend, Shirley, and they had a baby girl named Kimber the next year. After the baby was born, Scott's older brother David invited him and his family to move to the Northwest for a job opportunity alongside him in trucking. And also, maybe mostly, so he could keep an eye on his wayward younger sibling. In July of 1992, Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge Harl H. Haas ruled out three confessions made by Scott Cox. The first tossed out was Cox's confession to his girlfriend, Meredith Lewis, who was working to get information for the police. Because she was working with law enforcement, the confession would only have been valid if Meredith had informed Cox of his legal rights, and if she hadn't told Cox she'd pay his bail if he admitted to the killings. The other two confessions were eliminated from the case because they hung on the first improperly obtained confession. Judge Haas said, this is the kind of case every judge dreams of not acquiring. Because he had to let him go, basically. Yeah, well, not let him go, but just, or, but just drop those. Yeah. Right. Which were probably pretty important to the case. Definitely. Luckily, the removal of those confessions was not enough to set Cox free, but they did affect the length of his sentence. 
In November of 1992, a grand jury indicted him on two counts of aggravated murder. Cox pleaded no contest to the murders of Rena Ann Brunson and Victoria Roan in September of 1993, receiving a 25-year sentence with a possible five years shaved off for good behavior and lifetime post-release supervision. If the confessions had been obtained properly, his conviction may have included the death penalty. Multnomah County Assistant District Attorney John Bradley said, regarding Newburgh Police's handling of the case, You had a very ambitious police chief, David Bishop, who saw this as a major, major case, and he decided to take on efforts himself. As a result of the debacle, Bishop was replaced as Newburgh Police Chief in 1993. The story of Scott Cox does not end here. We'll return to him in a few minutes, but first, I wanted to talk about an article I found while doing research, which included a helpful and absolutely staggering map of unsolved homicides in Washington. And we'll talk about that after this short break. The Seattle Times article from March 21, 1993, details a map of a roughly 100-square-mile area of Washington, encompassing cities like Seattle to the north, Tacoma to the south, and North Bend and Enumclaw in the northeast and southeast of the square, respectively. Dotting this map are 79 markings, each denoting 49 probable Green River killer victims and 30 similar homicides since 1985. The cases of these women and girls are all unsolved, and I won't be detailing all of those listed, just uh, many of the ones that were linked to Scott Cox. There was Virginia Rambus, 19, who was last seen leaving her apartment for a party on May 20th, 1985. It was just a few minutes' walk to the co-worker's apartment, which was in the same complex as hers. But she never made it and has not been seen since. Wow, that's scary. Yeah, just five Within minutes' walk. Within your same yep. complex? Yeah, and that, and that happened a lot. As I read these, there's like that, that's like a, a, a common theme among well, that, these. That also reminds me of Ted Bundy, how mm-hmm. he would like abduct someone from campus mm-hmm. as they were just walking mm-hmm. across, you know. Oof. Virginia sometimes went by her middle name, Anne, and was last seen wearing a white pullover sweater, jeans, and black cowboy boots. On May 9, 1990, the nude body of a woman was discovered by a driver heading eastbound on I-70, where it crosses Utah's Green River. This is Emory County, a remote-looking area located southeast of Salt Lake City and northwest of Moab. And detectives there had identified the body as 19-year-old Vicki Lynn Perkins through a new computerized fingerprint ID system. She had been dead for three months, and the cause was ruled a homicide due to evidence on the body that Vicki Lynn had been beaten and strangled. There is very little coverage of the murder of Vicki Lynn Perkins. A few articles describe her as a prostitute, and we all know that song by heart. Diane Robbins, the youngest to go missing at age 13, was last seen in Seattle with her 21-year-old friend Molly Purden Clary. Both disappeared in June of 1985, and Purden Clary's remains were found the next month on the side of a road in Mount Baker, Snoqualmie National Forest, east of Seattle. She had been beaten to death. Diane is also believed to have been murdered, but her body has not been found. Doris LaVon Mulhern was 21 when she disappeared on March 12, 1987. The last person to see her was her boyfriend, who dropped her off at 3 that afternoon at the SeaTac Mall in Federal Way. Aaron McGregor's car was found abandoned in a Seattle, Columbia City neighborhood apartment parking lot 
a month after she disappeared on September 19, 1990. In March of 2001, two men looking for shed deer antlers alongside Interstate 90 near Milepost 39 found the partial skull of Aaron McGregor buried in the dirt. In Seattle, on October 25, 1990, 31-year-old Deborah Yvonne Wims disappeared while driving to a supermarket on South 216th Street and Pacific Highway South in Seattle, where the vehicle was found abandoned. And it was a sadly familiar loss. Deborah's sister Cheryl Lee Wims had disappeared on May 23, 1983, her 19th birthday, and her skeletal remains were discovered in March of 1984. Her killer was later determined to be Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. So both sisters were murdered? Yeah, by wow. different people. Yeah. That is so tragic. Yeah. Wow. The odds of that. Well, it's probably higher if they're working in similar... Yeah, that's true. If they're both in sex work and they're yeah. both in the same area. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Especially in that time frame. I didn't see a record that they were. Uh, at least not that um, Deborah. Uh, I'm definitely Deborah was, yeah, but... taking a stab in the dark at it based I on think so, yeah. Gary Ridgway's yeah. victims. Stephanie Douglas disappeared from her McMinnville, Oregon home sometime between 10.30 p.m. the night of November 27, 1990, and the early morning hours of the next day, when her husband arrived home from work to find Stephanie missing, yet their three children still asleep in their beds. Her husband went out to search for Stephanie, and he discovered her car in a local department store's parking lot. He told police that other cars in the parking lot had iced over, but hers had not. It had been left there recently. Stephanie, who was 25 at the time of her disappearance, has not been found. Crystal R. Barkman disappeared after leaving a friend's home in Tigard, Oregon on April 13, 1991, the day after her 18th birthday. Her partially buried body was found on May 4th on Chehalem Mountain, north of Newburgh. Police believe Crystal had been strangled. She was pregnant at the time of her murder. On May 19, 1991, 19-year-old Noyet Toa Fuong planned to study at Shoreline Community College before going to work at the Federal Building in Seattle, where she did clerical work. She left her parents' house and was en route to the college when she disappeared and was never seen again. She is believed to be the victim of a serial killer. Cora Christmas McGurk was 22 and a mother of three children. She was last seen by her aunt on July 12, 1991, and vanished that same day. During the visit, she asked the aunt to take care of her kids if anything happened to her. Her, mm. mm-hmm. her car was found abandoned near Aurora Avenue North in Seattle. Her oldest son, Martel Webster, one of three raised by Cora's aunt, went on to play with the Portland Trailblazers. That's a fun fact. That's a fun fact. That is fishy that she said in case something happens yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. That may be a little different than these other MOs. Yeah, more of a Maybe a victim of domestic violence or something. Or she maybe been, you know, she knew the stories of what was happening on the streets mm, there. Oh, it was yeah, just that's like, true. It seemed like every day. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It was a scary time, but yet they and just to word, pay the bills. Yeah, mm-hmm. word among, among everyone that she would interact with, yeah. And then there was Hazel Gilnett, killed in 1988 in Snohomish County, Washington. The 53-year-old's body was found 100 feet off Highway 2, a handful of miles east of the world-famous Zeke's Drive-In in Gold Bar, Washington. Have you guys been there? I have not. Never heard of Never it. Never heard of it. The location of Hazel Gilnett's body was many years later found to be in close proximity to where Linda Ramos Moore's remains were stumbled upon in March of 2022, 
32 years after her murder. A November 2022 Tri-Cities Herald article reveals that what is left of her body is in the possession of Seattle police, as the case remains unsolved. Oh, so it is a recent article. Linda Ramos-Moore, who I talked about uh, at the beginning of the mm-hmm. story, yeah, she was found in 2022. Oh, okay. I missed that part. And, and luckily, all these people are out there looking for deer antlers on the ground. Yeah, very popular. That's great. Is that a good, they, they, like for money? Yeah, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they get a good penny for those. Yeah, it's like per pound or something because they use them for dog treats and all sorts of stuff. Oh. In 2013, Mount Lake Terrace police detective Sergeant Mike Haynes was contacted by news media regarding a murderer who was being released from the Oregon State Correctional Institution in Salem, Scott William Cox. Uh-oh. Ken Summers, formerly of the Newburgh Police Department, who had been involved in the initial investigation into Cox, had very serious concerns about that February 22nd release of Scott Cox, whom he believed still posed a threat to others. He said many of the other law enforcement agencies who'd inquired about Cox's involvement in the unsolved murders in their jurisdictions closed their cases on him after his murder convictions. He said a possible reason for this was the high cost at the time to run DNA tests. So they figured they already had him. Mm, we, don't need to, we don't need to pop him right. for anything else. Yep. Yeah. Were, were the cases still unsolved, though? So like if they needed to revisit it? I, all of these are. I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if they had DNA, it could potentially be run. Right. Mount Lake Terrace Police Sergeant Craig McCall said investigators tracing Cox's trucking routes placed him in the area, quote, between the time of Tia Hicks's disappearance and the discovery of her body. A delivery route to a car dealership would have taken him past the Silver Dollar Casino or the bingo hall across the street where she was found in that boat in the bilge in a blue tarp. Haynes had the swab samples from Tia Hicks' body from 1991 retested at the Washington State Patrol Crime Laboratory Division. And this time, with 22 years of advancement in DNA testing, results showed male DNA present on the stored anal and vaginal swabs, which through further testing could be linked to an individual. Could being the operative word, as the second set of tests failed to pinpoint a suspect. Now, since he was in prison for violent crime, did they end up taking his DNA when he was convicted? Oh, I didn't read that. I don't know if they did that back then. Because I, I think that was passed maybe in the early 2000s. I can't quite remember. So I don't know. Yeah, possible. I wondered if anyone was in prison at the time if they took their DNA. I wonder, too, if that's part of like uh, being in post, you know, post-prison supervision for life, if that's part of it, like we want your oh, like yeah. DNA. I, wonder, I don't know about that. Yeah. Tia Hicks' murder remains unsolved. Deborah McDaniel, Tia's mother, was interviewed in 2013. She said, we were like sisters. I was very young when I had her, so we kind of grew up together. The biggest part is not knowing. I don't know who's responsible. I look at everybody as a suspect. There's not a day that goes by where I don't think about what happened to my daughter and who did it. It never ends. And it won't end until my life ends. The last time she and Tia spoke, Deborah begged her to seek treatment for her addiction issues. Tia agreed to it, but vanished before she had a chance to get help. The author of a comment posted on a 2014 MTL, or Mount Lake Terrace, news article regarding Tia Hicks' cold case says they are Tia's mother, Deborah McDaniel. She posted, As Tia's mother, I find it very disturbing how the media continues to focus on prostitution and drugs when my daughter has never had an arrest or conviction of either. She has been publicly portrayed as a hooker by the media. Quite sad that some reporters re-victimize the victim, but I assume that's what attracts the public. True enough, there is evidence of drugs and alcohol in her system, 
What she did in the last months of her life is unknown to me, and that is not the person she was. I had no idea this article was published until recently. And then this part is directed at the writer of the article. It would have been respectful for you to inform me of this, as some of your statements in this article really don't sit well with me. Deborah McDaniel, Justice for Tia. That's hard because as a parent, you want their name continued in the media so they're not forgotten Mm -hmm. and that their case remains open. So she, she recognizes that maybe them talking about her being a potential sex worker is going to get more eyes on it, but it's sullying her memory and may not be accurate. That's right. so hard. I can't and it imagine. Also, I think that's always done to be like comforting to people, you know, and I know oh, we've like, talked about this. It's not like, going to oh happen Oh my God, that would never be me. Mm-hmm. That would never be my daughter. We that's don't unfair. do those things. Like, yes, they're in a higher risk, but even like she's saying, she doesn't know if that's what she was doing. Right. And also doesn't matter. What if that was one of us? And they're like, oh, she could have been. I mean, sure, she could have been. Yeah. But like, you don't know. You can't just say that. Yeah. And it just has no bearing on anything. Like, except for putting her in a situation that led to contact with this yeah, guy. Yeah, it's just riskier. But. Wow, that's hard. Scott Cox, convicted of the murders of Victoria Roan and Rena Brunson, served 20 of the 25 years to which he was sentenced in 1993, receiving five years off for good behavior and time he served in county jail prior to the convictions. Released in 2013, his post-prison requirements were supervision for life, GPS monitoring, no contact with minors, and a curfew. When initially released, his decades earlier forgery conviction meant he had to reside in Yamhill County, which was his county of record. The sheriff there, Jack Crabtree, was asked if he thought Scott Cox was dangerous. His response? I guess we'll find out. Oh, that's, no. not, that's not a savory one. Fun, fun sheriff. Yeah. Scott Cox violated his parole conditions twice the year he was released. Once for taking a longer route on a trip to the beach than had been approved, which is not the biggest deal. And the second, which is a huge deal, was that he had contact with children of a girlfriend. Oh. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 90 days in the county jail. When sent to jail, he was caught on surveillance camera smuggling chewing tobacco inside one of his shoes. More like shoeing tobacco. Oh, boy. Sorry. I could find no other records of Cox violating the terms of his release. Quote, There is no more important nexus to find serial killers than missing persons. The major things done wrong were failures to track and identify missing persons. The person quoted here, Michael Nault, a retired King County police detective commander, was speaking about the Green River Killer and Ted Bundy cases. Yet the sentiment has shown to be true in most cases, most of the time. The missing and forgotten are some of the most vulnerable to the Scott Coxes of the Pacific Northwest and the world at large. County corrections records show that Scott Cox remains a resident of Oregon. If you have any information related to any of the unsolved cases we spoke about today, you can contact the Seattle Police Department's Homicide Unit at 206-684-5500, and tips can be left at 206-333-5000. You can also call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS, where you can even submit a tip and remain anonymous, if that works best for you. The National Sexual Assault Hotline provides 24-7 confidential support. They can be reached at 800 656 4673 or at online.rainn.org. 
And that was a uh, sad. Uh, and I do think I did know part of that case. Not all of it. Not all of it. Yeah, it's um, it's a case that was only really covered kind of briefly. And, and they didn't I didn't really see much about um, the span of those those possible crimes. And, mm-hmm. and he could never definitively be linked to any of them. But I believe that's the case. You know, who knows? So probably. Possible serial killer killed two women, confessed to more, but those were tossed. And then for the two women, only got 20 years, and now he's just out. And Well, I understand time served, like in jail prior to court, adding that to the and taking that off the sentence. I'll never understand good behavior. Yeah, it's like, isn't that the expectation? Isn't that the baseline? Like, that's the point of having a parole, a possible parole day right. where you are then able to apply. Right. And then they say yes or no based on factors. But like early for murder? Yeah. No, thank you. You shouldn't get credit for doing just what you're supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. Like, we expected you to be shitty and awful. So the fact that you weren't, we'll take off some. It's like he was given those years. Not yeah. because they expected him to be a that makes terror. no sense. And then it could be overcrowding in the eighties, but it's like get other types of crime. I understand not murder, not violent rape, murder. Like that doesn't make sense to me, and it never will. Multiple murders, and always when it's houseless or sex work, mm-hmm. that seems to to really cut yeah. the cut the sentencing quite a lot. Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah, because it's like, isn't the point? of having someone go isn't the point of jails and the threat of spending your life behind bars to be somewhat of a deterrent so it shouldn't matter if the courtroom is filled with family and supporters of the victim or not because the whole point is to make you know isn't that the thing to teach a lesson and to show others like don't go killing people you'll get 50 years and you won't get out early and you have to think like people are equal so no Mm -hmm. matter what someone did for a living it shouldn't be a factor yeah well that's well hopefully the monitoring is strict and i wonder too it's like okay so he has gps what does that mean? Is that just to save it for if he gets accused of that again? Or are they actually like Whoa. monitoring it and going weird? It's also probably only for a short period of time. Yeah. They're not going to have monitoring for the rest of his life. He'll have PO check in, but. Right. Yikes. What a guy. And how weird that he's not talked about. That's the kind of guy who should be talked about way more so we than know Ted Bundy is. or the Green uh-huh. River Killer because he's out and again. Not to say he couldn't have been reformed, but more so the possibility of does he have more time to serve for other things he might have done? And is he dangerous still? Yeah, I had when I started writing it, I had no idea that he had been released and was out. And because I didn't know and I didn't know about I didn't know about all the other murders that he was implicated possibly as a suspect. And who knows across the country? All that truck driving. Ohio, Mm -hmm. like as far as Ohio. Oh yeah, there were there were so many articles I found of of police agencies talking to him about about things. A lot of them weren't connected, but some of them oh, were. Oh but but goodness. could never be because I mean, yeah, it's just like a a, a moving lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You can't be you can't be tracked. Oh, and you can explain why you were there like that. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. of course I was there. It was my route. And I think they did tie a lot of the like the times of murders to times when he was 
there. Like you could you could put it, you could put two maps over it, you know, yeah, right. with the routes and with with these murders. But and of I think course, they would match up a lot. Unless they have a solid case, they're likely not going to pursue it yeah. because that's tax dollars. And all these years later, who's going to go back for a dead hooker? And there's so many other serial killers too. Right. It could it's be, like who could it be? Green River Killer yeah. is blamed for so many things yeah. because of how many victims he had. Anybody could masquerade and kill someone in a similar style and get away with it. And we saw people doing that mm-hmm. at that time. Like, oh, I'll just dump the body. They'll think it's him. Yeah. Yeah. Like, people should uh, should check out the um, one of the links has a has a map uh, that I was talking about with those those 79 different different markings on it. And looking at that is a very, you know, we, we cover a lot of murders, but to see a small area with all those with pins s- just and those are just the ones they knew about. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And and the ones that were unsolved. So there's 80 unsolved. How, how Who knows how many that were like, oh. Are actually well, yeah. Every day we hear about remains being found yeah. for some hiker, or mushroom harvester, or antler harvester. Yeah. Who knows how many more they're going to stumble across that are still tied to the same people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just back in, uh, back in March last year. Wow. Yeah, and so he's not very old, I would imagine. I think he's 63. So that's not that old. That's oh, wow. like Richard Gilmore. Same age as Richard that, Gilmore. That was that was the thing that struck me too. Just just that we've had we've covered two cases like this, and they're they're have you know similar ages, similar ages, similar, similar time frame. They yeah. were let out. Well, speaking of previous cases, maybe now is a good time to bring up uh, my last case. Mm. Uh, we had someone reach out because we talked a little bit about kind of the misogynistic language and and right. these old rules. So we have a listener. This was regarding the Malala for forest killer. Yeah, part okay. two. So this is our, our listener, Mitch, uh, brought up some points about it, and I thought I would just read from this email, if that's okay, Mitch. I think it is. So Mitch was basically agreeing, like, yes, the language is kind of, eh, but as I had considered, it, that's not where it's based in. So they say, but these are based on prior statistics and actuarial documents, not prejudice. While some of the statistical reasons also are a result of bias, such as gay and bi men being traditionally marginalized in society, leading to higher rates of poverty and drug addiction, a trend which in the last 20 years has reversed considerably, these stats are based on aggregate crime rates from the past century and reflect things about how prison populations used to be comprised, which are no longer true. We also understand how much better that a man who rapes or has consensual sex with men in prison or even outside may identify as completely straight and only capable of emotional connection with women or no one at all, since rape is motivated primarily by the desire to dehumanize, dominate, humiliate, and traumatize another person, not because of the perpetrator being attractive and also wants to fuck the victim so bad that they lose control of themselves. So that was an interesting thought, and that was great. And then they also bring up um, the term I used towards the end of the episode where I said the word mongoloid. And I just want to state that was a quote originated from the autopsy and was also in the book I read. It was not something I would use to describe a victim. And later I did state they were um, Caucasian and Asian. That was a term that for a long time people in anthropology used to describe um, someone of Asian descent. So I just wanted to to mention that it is outdated and it's slowly being weeded out of textbooks, but it is sometimes still used. So it's important to kind of note that is an offensive term. And I didn't I wouldn't say that outside of a quote. Right. So I just wanted to bring that up in case anyone else <laughs> wondered. 
Um, but that was a great email. So yeah, like Mitch, if you have thoughts, you have knowledge about something that maybe we question, like often we'll say we don't know legal terms. If you know, <laughs> email us because we would love to share your thoughts and um, kind of give another perspective on something. Yeah, so definitely. thank you, Mitch. Thanks, Mitch. Hello, hello. How do I sound when I talk like this? You, well, don't talk like that. Cool. I'm doing okay. things. I'm looking stuff up. <laughs> I'm doing things. That's right. I made that up. That's a new song. No way. That's a new song by MJ. Out next Tuesday. I'm too old for this. Shouldn't be crawling into a chair. <laughs> Bald. For God's for sake. For God's sake. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Haven't I been through enough? Check, 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 check. I will name anything perfectly. That baby, Jessifer. Oh, you named a you named a Blorfus, the area between your the bottom of your nose and your lip. Uh yeah, I do, but I forgot. Oh my god, I just learned this well, online. It's called a Blorfus. Yeah, it's now called a Blorfus. That's what we call but it. That's not what the medical journals call it. Well, did I, I say because I'm a doctor? Did you did you hear about the vending machine that was arrested? Because it was caught with a ton of coke. Oh my god. <laughs> Check. So maybe they'll ask hello. me to do an ad scene. That's cool. Hi. Hi, hello. Oh, no, no, Did no. Did you no. need something? Hello? No, hello? No, I was just over here practicing my voice. <laughs> I need to practice I was not, I was, my you guys, voice. I was trying a new voice today. I was not trying to stop you guys from talking. I well, disagree. You, uh, you him, wanted him. our attention I and do you not. got it. Attention. I don't want anyone's attention. That's a true fact. <laughs> don't. So we are caught. Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a commercial yesterday for and, and this woman was talking uh, about how when she sorry snuck right out talking right. about how when she was a kid she ate spaghetti noodles and ketchup Have i you, saw that ad too it's a heinz commercial what the hell okay i don't know okay, but i was wait. very upset this is creepy because i just saw a tiktok where this jewish woman was feeding her kids spaghetti and it was noodles and ketchup is that a thing yeah in the commercial it's cartoon and she's like even all the way back when i was a kid e kid eating spaghetti and noodles and i turned i was like what the fuck are you talking about and I, she's like i still love heinz that's disgusting but and i will i'll do i'll get nasty with pasta but i don't get that nasty i don't understand why someone would delude themselves into thinking that's spaghetti sauce like no, yeah that is not ketchup. okay that is hot dog sauce Oh, absolutely, because she puts ketchup in macaroni and cheese. Yeah, she does. Those people have no palate. Oh, my God. The color the color of macaroni and cheese. It looks like menstrual. With, thank you. Menstrual. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Tabasco's a little vinegary for my liking, but I'll fuck like with shit. it if I need to. <gasps> Tastes Joshua. like shit. He screams. I hate Tabasco. Joshua. I had toast. So there you but go. But I have my protein water by Isopure Tropical Punch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for them to sponsor us so I can have it for free. Yeah, hello. Okay, I'm done. Josh, it's your time to shine. All right, here I go. Everyone's ears on you. Twinkle, twinkle. Didn't you say your mother would come home with fried chicken from Are you Chester's? Talking to me? Yeah, you. Absolutely not. Who was that? I don't know. Well, I'm scared. All right, we got the goofies uh, out. Yeah, no more sillies, everybody. <laughs> his charges were. His, his charges was, was weird. That was a weird word. Hello, I'm <laughs> calling the police for harassment right now. Hello. 
oh, I just accidentally zoomed in on this and was like typing in it oh. and stuff accidentally <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. So, what an accident. Yeah, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best way to make fun of accidents, though, yeah, you that's know? Yeah, true. We all someone makes better. a poopy, you do a funny voice. Do you show me make a stinky poo-poo? The poo-poo. The poo-poo. Damn it, I had it. I said it all. All those hard words I said, mm-hmm. and then I just stopped like I like ran into a tree. <laughs> <sighs> the medical examiner estimated... The... Calm down, Josh. Calm down. You're doing great, Josh. <laughs> Thomas Boner. Hits in a bowl... Oh, my God. <laughs> Hits in a bowl. <laughs> to Washington and Oregon police agents. <laughs> you lost your I breath. I lost it, man. Your breath control just went... <sighs> Clothing exhibiting blood evidence was also found in Cox's. <laughs> you wait. Remember when I said exhibiting, you guys laughed at me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're back. You we're like back. A little dum-dum. <laughs> <laughs> Not even outer? outer? Nothing. No. No. Here's the thing. Fiji, I don't think I'll find a lover unless I find two because it's known for honeymooners. And I have uh, my own honeymoon suite well, hey, to myself. That'd be get, cool in, to like, get into whatever you're yeah, into. Yeah, fuck school. up a marriage, a brand new marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Going back to my yeah, cabana. Fuck up a marriage. <laughs> serious as serious Black. Oh. Who? Gary Oldman. Yep. It's a Harry Potter reference, Alicia. <laughs> you wouldn't understand. <laughs> Makes me a cranky little butthole. It does. <laughs> <laughs> no. No teasing. I'm sorry. Business. We should go there. It's very, it's very far east. Okay. I would love doing like a road trip for food. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. Anything else? No, Anybody? I don't think so. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>